Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight, however, we are celebrating Police, a Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. Unfortunately, Tyler could not join us tonight, um, so David will be presenting the book on his own. Um, it's a radical glossary of the vocabulary of policing that redefines the very way we understand law enforcement. David Correa is an associate professor in the Department of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. He is the author of Properties of Violence, Law and Land, Grant Struggle in Northern New Mexico. Author Astra Taylor described it as a dictionary of liberation, an antidote to the cop speak that's everywhere. By dissecting and analyzing a vocabulary of power that has become dangerously ubiquitous, this book can help us dispel and loosen its grip. We're delighted to have him here tonight to read and discuss Police, a Field Guide. Please help me welcome David Correa. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. Thanks for um, hosting me here. Um, thanks for coming out. I, would, I didn't know what to expect on a rainy day in LA. That never happens, right? So maybe that actually brings you out. Um, so I, wanna, I wanted to um, read some passages from the book, but I wanted to introduce it first and, and give you a little background on the book. I was, uh, uh, as she said, I'm from Albuquerque, and you might not know about, f about four months before Ferguson erupted, Albuquerque erupted after the police killing of a homeless man, James Boyd, and I had been writing about police violence in Albuquerque at the time. I got more involved, particularly with families of people who had been killed by police in Albuquerque. And um, throughout the summer of 2014 and into 2015, um, I was involved with a, a lot of other activists who were organizing against police violence in Albuquerque. And one of the things that, that became really clear to me um, right away was the, was the difficulty people have in talking about police. Um, the language we have to even understand or discuss police is a language that comes to us from police. Um, in some ways, police don't just uh, patrol our streets, they, they patrol our, our language. And so this book is really an effort to try to, to provide an alternative uh, vocabulary that might help us get past uh, some of the ways in which uh, we can get stuck in thinking about police. One of the premises of this book is that police reform, really any city that gets seized by the crises that police violence produces, will invariably find themselves in the grips of police reform. And I know that LA is no different. Uh, and um, and uh, police reform is often, an, and it's one of the premises of the book, is that police reform is really an effort to, to restore legitimacy to, to police rather than really confront the, the racialized, gendered, and class nature of police violence more generally. And so the, the, the point of the book is, is as, she, as Vanessa said, it's, it's, it's a kind of a glossary. It, it works like an encyclopedia in which we have entries that are cross-listed 
Um, and and it, it's not supposed to be read cover to cover like, like any other book you might pick up in this bookstore. It's actually supposed to be a different book for every single person who reads it because you might, you might open it up and read community policing and then, uh, and then turn to, and then each, each of the cross-listed entries within another entry, are, 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 there's a page number provided. And so it's a different book for everybody. So it's part resource, part uh, field guide, liter literally a field guide um, that, that in some ways I think is designed to, to provide us a language that uh, gets past what we call cop speak or even more, I think, directly um, to help abolish the police in our head. The one, the, 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 the cop in our head is the cop that sees threats and emergencies rather than neighbors and, and comrades. And so that, that's the, the point of the book. And I, it's organized in sort of five different sections. And so what I wanted to do tonight was read one entry in all those five different sections to give you an idea about, about, uh, about what the book is about and the kind of argument we're making. Um, and so the first, the first section is, um, or the, the second section is called The Oath, Core Values of Police. And those, those entries are like private property, order, security, pacification, law, crime, and so on. And I want to read to you uh, an entry called Private Property. Again, these are about between two and four minutes each to read. Private property does not merely describe a relation between an owner and a thing. It is a social relation, the right to exclude, shot through with violence. If I take food from a grocery store, drive a car off a dealer's lot, or move into your spare bedroom, and I do it without permission, without paying, and most importantly, without punishment or fear of punishment, then we can't say food and cars and spare bedrooms are private property. Without the enforcement of an exclusive claim, there is no private property. Private property is therefore always based on force, which is to say that there is no private property without violence. The capitalist state defends private property rights. Quote, the first and chief design of every system of government, unquote, according to Adam Smith, is to maintain justice, as he puts it, to prevent the members of society from encroaching on one another's property or seizing what is not their own. These are Adam Smith's words. The design here is to give each one the secure and peaceable possession of his own property, unquote. Justice, in other words, according to Smith, is found in the realm of property. The state's use of violence to enforce property relations is how capitalism defends what it considers just. To speak of enforcement is to speak of police. Property is thus a form of police violence. In Smith's day, the word police referred to an expansive authority to regulate commerce and property. The section titled Police, in his lectures on jurisprudence, explained the general principles of law and government as the domain of police. Quote, the objects of police, according to Smith, are the cheapness of commodities, public security, and cleanliness. In particular, quote, whatever regulations are made with respect to the trade, commerce, agriculture, manufacturers of the country are considered as belonging to police, unquote. The point of all this property policing is to produce what Smith considered liberty. Freedom from coercion, freedom from violence, freedom to pursue one's own fullest potential. The irony, of course, is that the freedom from coercion and violence that capitalism promises is a freedom delivered at the end of a cop's nightstick, the invisible hand of the market attached to the strong arm of the law. Private property, established through force, has transformed the world we live in. 
And it was and is the job of police to patrol the landscapes of private property, to enforce these boundaries and barriers, walls, and enclosures. Thus, property might best be understood as a police category. Police arrest the trespasser, evict the squatter, and foreclose on the jobless homeowner. Encroachment on private property is a threat to a capitalist order, and it is police who manage this threat. Private property requires violence. Consider the law of adverse possession, for example. The owner of real property, a suburban house, uh, or a city lot, or a rural pasture, is required to announce and sustain an exclusive claim to property through a variety of acts. Paying your taxes, erecting fences and no trespassing signs, mailing eviction notices uh, to renters who are in arrears, making improvements and more. These are all performances of an ongoing exclusive claim. If an owner does not perform these acts, another may do so and claim ownership. Violence, too, is among the required performances of property. The state of Florida's justifiable use of force statute, also known as stand your ground, describes violence as among property's rights. If a person has, as the law says, quote, a reasonable fear of imminent peril or of death or great bodily harm, unquote, unquote, the law permits the use of lethal force, but only if an aggressor quote, had unlawfully and forcibly entered a dwelling, residence, or, or occupied vehicle, unquote. The law, however, forbids the use of lethal violence in that same circumstance if the aggressor, quote, has the right to be in or is a lawful residence of, resident of the dwelling, residence, or vehicle, such as an owner, lessee, or title holder, unquote. In other words, as far as the law is concerned, the authority of the state to sanction the use of violence exists only in the context of a property relation. People do not have an unalloyed right to kill, but property owners do. Property relations are violent relations, and property has always been a racialized category. Historically, the law has elevated the property claims made by white people. Consider the history of the slave patrol in the Virginias and Carolinas, for example. We should understand the work of the slave patrol as a defense of whiteness as an exclusive property claim, a property claim that extended over black life. And what happens when the oppressed rise up and riot in challenge to the privileges and whiteness of property? The elite fear the destruction of their property, yes, but even more, they fear the destruction of the social relations that make private property possible. And so they fear a world without police. I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to also read some entries that uh, specifically relate to LA. And a lot of this book is, is um, also historical. And we're trying to develop a, a theory of police that take the history of police seriously. The first section is called Weaponology, Technologies and Tactics of Police Violence. And I want to read you, read you an entry on the police helicopter, which is very much an LA technology, as, as I don't need to tell you. Right. So this is an entry called Police Helicopter. <clears throat> According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, more than 200 police departments in the U.S. engage in aerial law enforcement through the use of helicopters and, to a lesser degree, fixed-wing aircraft. The Los Angeles Police Department's Air Support Division is the world's largest municipal police aviation department with nearly 100 officers and 19 helicopters and operates out of the largest heliport in the United States. Combined with the 18 helicopters of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, Aero Bureau, the skies above Los Angeles are never without police helicopters. 
The pivotal moment for the police helicopter as a routine form of police urban patrol came in 1966 in Lakewood, California, a suburb of LA. Project Skynight, funded by the National Crime Commission and conceived by former Los Angeles County Sheriff Peter Pitches, proposed the helicopter as a means of continuous, constant aerial patrol. Pitches, who used helicopters first during the 1965 Watts riot, sought to extend the helicopter's potential for permanent police patrol. A promotional video for Project Sky Night at the time described the helicopter as, quote, bad news for bad guys, unquote, while explaining that the experiment, quote, takes its, takes its name from the knight of old, whose vow is to protect the weak and pursue the wicked, but all too often the bad guys got away, unquote. Project Sky Night was celebrated by the media, which called the helicopter the heavenly prowl car. Today, Airbus markets its helicopters as a, quote, force multiplier to police departments worldwide. The sales materials describe its use, quote, in Europe, when crowds of, or demonstrations grow unruly, helicopters discreetly ferry crowd control police into position so as to avoid provoking violence that might put ground personnel at risk, unquote. More than 2,000 police helicopters prowl the skies over U.S. cities. If we consider the tactical helicopters operated by U.S. police departments as one unit, it is larger than every military on Earth, except for the fleets maintained by the U.S., China, and Russia. Police helicopters are loud and visible and serve as a constant reminder of the ubiquity and reach of police power. That reach usually extends specifically to what police call crime-infested neighborhoods. But air power obliterates any useful distinction between subject and bystander, target and non-target. As one LA journalist wrote in 92, quote, hearing LAPD helicopters circle overhead is a nightly phenomenon over much of the LA basin. Even in middle-class neighborhoods like my own, the circular flight patterns have a way of making feel as if they're smack in the center of a crime drama, unquote. Police explain this nightly phenomenon of police in the air uh, supports the work of police on the ground. They use helicopters to quickly locate and track fleeing suspects, for example. But nearly all police departments claim aerial patrols serve first and foremost as a deterrent. According to the Institute for Police Studies, police helicopters, quote, contribute to a significant deterrent effect, unquote. The Chicago Police Department claims its helicopter operations, quote, enhance the capabilities of first responders through the deterrence and prevention of crime, unquote. What does it mean for police to invoke deterrence as a way to explain the purpose of aerial policing? Deterrence has long been a guiding logic of police power, of the patrol strategies specifically. The introduction of the police helicopter promised to revolutionize the police powers of deterrence through the nearly magical powers of total mobility and swift punishment. Police power is positioned as omnipresent, all-seeing, and able to stop crime before it happens. Deterrence theory is also at the heart of military strategy and engagement. The theory of deterrence proposes confronting a threat with the permanent presence of intimidating and overwhelming power with the promise of punishment swift and severe. This requires not just air power, but air superiority. Quote, whoever controls the air, according to a 1995 Air Force study, generally controls the surface, unquote. Air power is the permanent presence of coercion and intimidation. It, quote, produces physical and psychological shock, unquote. This is deterrence. 
The constant sound of police helicopters hovering over South Central Los Angeles underscores nearly every scene of director John Singleton's 1991 film, Boys in the Hood. The ominous sound of helicopters and sirens is the film's soundtrack, soundtrack. and the helicopter's thermal in imagers and one million watt searchlights turn night into day. Singleton depicts South Central LA, where police power occupies everyday life, peering into windows, and drowning out conversations. The film's co-star Ice Cube called police helicopters ghetto birds on his 93 al album, Lethal Injection. That same year, hip hop artist KRS-One in his song, Sound of the Police saying, quote, whoop, whoop, that's the sound of the police. Whoop, whoop, that's the sound of the beast, unquote. In the song, he repeats the word overseer over and over again in the song until it sounds like officer connecting the history of slavery and the slave patrol to police. Quote, the overseer rode around the plantation. The officer is off patrolling all the nation, unquote. Air power serves the same purpose, whether in Kosovo, Iraq, or South Central Los Angeles. Whether we're talking about a military no-fly zone in Iraq after the first Gulf War, or the no-fly zone above Ferguson, Missouri after the police killing of Michael Brown. It is the ever-present threat of punishment. Military bombs falling on Iraqi villages or police searchlights landing on Compton streets. A U.S. military drone killing a dozen people in a wedding party in Yemen in 2014. Or Philadelphia police dropping bombs from helicopters on black move activists in 1985, killing 11 people, including five children. Ooh, ooh, that's the sound of the police. Ooh, ooh, that's the sound of the beast. Um, one of the sections we have is called cop speak. Much of what this book is trying to do is interrupt cop speak, trying to offer an alternative vocabulary. And one of the sort of, I think maybe lesser well-known phrases that are very common among police is a phrase called no humans involved. Uh, and this also is one that relates to LA and San Diego more generally. I want to read this, this is a short one. This is called No Humans Involved. Police use the classifying acronym NHI to refer to su suspected gang members and black-on-black -black crime. Quote, no humans involved, they say. According to Sylvia Winter, the acronym banishes the poor and black people from the category of the human. As she puts it, quote, humanness and North Americanness are always already defined, not only in optimally white terms, but also in optimally middle-class terms, unquote. In the early 1980s, LAPD officers used chokeholds to kill 16 people during routine arrests, 12 of whom were black. When a reporter asked Los Angeles Police Chief Daryl Gates to explain why LAPD officers were choking so many black people to death, he explained that, quote, the veins and arteries do not open up as fast in blacks as they do in normal people, unquote. In other words, according to Gates, it was impossible for LAPD officers to commit a crime against a black person because there were no humans involved. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote of the color line as the central problem of the 20th century. And the use of NHI by police and other violence workers demonstrates that this line is not a metaphor, but rather a line literally policed by the state. This racist language marks people of color as less than human, and it was and remains prevalent language among police in Miami, St. Louis, Phoenix, and particularly Los Angeles, where the use of the term has been carefully documented. In the late 1980s, LAPD officers began referring to murders of gang members by rival gang members as NHI. 
Following the beating of Rodney King in 1991, the Christopher Commission investigated racist violence at the LAPD. The subsequent report devoted page after page of examples of racially motivated police violence rationalized by a pattern of racist speech. LAPD officers routinely used epithets to describe black and Latino people as animals. The practice was so widespread, in fact, that officers typed their racist epithets directly into a mobile communication system they knew to be monitored by their supervisors. In one communication profiled in the report, officers discussed killing black people. Quote, everybody you kill in the line of duty becomes a slave in the afterlife, he wrote. For police to say of black deaths that there are, quote, no humans involved is to deny black personhood. What does it say about police power that it routinely engages in the discursive production of black people as less than human and prescribes violence as the means to an end that culminates in a return to black slavery? But NHI in the police lexicon refers also to the murder of women they consider prostitutes, whose slangs they describe as misdemeanor murders a reference to the total lack of concern regarding their deaths throughout the criminal justice system. Donna Gentile was one of 45 women raped and murdered in San Diego between 1985 and 1992. Gentile, who was both a sex worker and a police informant, was found strangled and choked to death after she testified against police. Her killer or killers had violently forced gravel into her mouth. Few of the murdered women were sex workers, but San Diego police referred to all the women as prostitutes. The police project, thus, is fundamentally a politics of personhood. NHI reveals the ways that police power is intimately bound up with the category of the human. But it is not simply that the police exterminate an already existing person through dehumanizing language that seeks to justify, if not celebrate, acts of oppression against those who police consider non-human. Rather, police power can more usefully be understood as a power that actively produces the very category of the human by conjuring up its opposite. Animals, savages, brutes, rodents, slaves, and even inanimate objects like trash and scum and filth, for instance, or snitches who need to eat gravel. Establishment definitions of police power generally imagine police authority as limited to deciding who is a threat and when to use force. But the violence marked with the acronym NHI reveals that police power defines the limits of the human and includes the authority to decide who is or isn't one. Identifying threats is also to identify who might or might not be a person. Policing is the work of death. Um, <clears throat> we have a, a section called Models of Policing that tries to take up specific uh, programs that have oriented and structured the way police actually do their work on the streets. And, and one that you might be familiar with is known by the acronym CRASH. And uh, this is an LA, this is a specifically LA program that you, you might be familiar with. CRASH. Community Resources Against Street Hoodlands, known by the, its acronym CRASH, was the Los Angeles Police Department anti-gang program that operated from 1973 until it was reorganized, not ended, reorganized in 2000. During most of those years, a CRASH unit operated in every LAPD division, LAPD division, division in the city. Although often described by the media as an elite unit, most were comprised of young, inexperienced officers working in nearly autonomous units with limited supervision. Crash units throughout the city became 
particularly notorious for their aggressive tactics. Crash units were assigned to specific gangs in areas that LAPD defined as, quote, gang infested, where they were given enormous latitude and autonomy. The notorious Rampart Division crash unit adopted an anything-goes approach to eradicate what its officers routinely called a gang infestation. A 2000 Board of Inquiry investigation of Rampart found that the word infestation commonly appeared in crash arrest reports. In other words, it was routine practice to stop and frisk and detain individuals in areas considered infested based on the reasonable suspicion that mere presence of a person in an infested neighborhood demonstrated gang membership and activity. Multiple investigations of Rampart concluded that its officers often forged supervisor signatures on arrest bookings, routinely invented probable cause, regularly booked suspected drug dealers or gang members on false drug or weapons charges, and often planted throwdown weapons on unarmed suspects in order to claim self-defense after police killings. And there were many police killings and shootings in Rampart during the mid-1990s, nearly triple the number of shootings in the 1980s. Crash officers gave themselves tattoos following shootings. They gave each other commemorative plaques, and they celebrated in sports bars, far from the, quote, infested neighborhoods they patrolled. It's important to consider the use of this word infested for what it re reveals about the logic of crash. An infestation refers to an invasion of a particular place by a dangerous or unwanted species, Thinks, think rats or cockroaches. It is also a common racially coded term that circulates in large urban US police departments to describe a perceived threat to the white body politic posed by usually a predominantly black or Hispanic community. It is instrumental for the way it rationalizes the practice of violent police power. But the word infestation establishes more than just probable cause for campaigns of stop and frisk racial profiling. It amplifies the police imperative to impose order by drawing an entire population into the orbit of police power. It marks an entire people the legitimate target of police violence. The word infestation absolved crash of the obligation to first determine if someone was or was not a member of a criminal gang. Instead, it defined Crass's job as the, same of the ex as the same as the exterminator. This is the political dream for the police that the gang-infested neighborhood provides. It removes any limit to the police use of force. Disorder in Rampart was defined by the presence of the poor, largely Salvadoran people living there, and Crass's job was to bring order. Crash officers conducted constant raids, frequent arrests, and ultimately deportations. In the late 1980s, Rampart Crash, in cooperation with the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the precursor to ICE, arrested hundreds of young Salvadoran men in Rampart based solely on the fact that they lived in Rampart and were Salvadoran. They turned them over to INS, which deported nearly 200 of these men based only on the fact that LAP LAPD had arrested them for, quote, gang membership. For a short time, Crash represented what we might call a pure expression of police violence, organized for everyone to see and unleashed on an entire people who lived under total and violent, violent control by a police force celebrated by reformers, unencumbered by any limits, and beyond the reach of any authority.
So um, one of the things that we're trying to do in this book is, is push back to against this idea that somehow we can reform the police we have, that there's something uh, immutably good about police that has just gone off the rails and we just need to fix maybe the training or the hiring and we can fix the problem. And the premise of our book is, is that the police we have can't be reformed, that the police we have operates precisely the way it's designed to operate. Um, and so a lot of the entries uh, specifically address the really sort of common reformist solutions like lapel, lapel camera, and instead suggest that there might be a, a dark side um, to those kinds of technologies. The last entry I want to read is one of those. Um, there's been a lot of effort, particularly in large metropolitan police departments such as in LA, to engage in what they call predictive policing, which is sort of computer or intelligence-led policing, which is an effort to try to bring what, what, what police would call objective, unbiased um, policing to a community. Um, uh, but in fact, I think, uh, th so this entry really tries to uh, uh, suggest that predictive policing might not be all that police promise it to be. Predictive policing. Predictive policing refers to the use of computer algorithms. This, is, this entry is not as boring as it starts out. <laughs> Predictive policing refers to the use of computer algorithms based on multivariate geospatial data to model or predict criminal activity. As a theory, it fits within what is known as, quote, intelligence-led policing, a mode of policing based on the analysis of quantitative geospatial data, such as CompStat. If you ever watched The Wire, one of the whole seasons was devoted to the Baltimore police using a, a version of CompStat, which was their sort of like analysis-led policing, which The Wire mocks ruthlessly. Advocates of predictive policing claim that it is scientific and therefore an objective and unbiased way to fight crime. Its origins are usually found in the 2008 efforts of former Boston, New York, and Los Angeles Police Chief William Bratton, who, along with a number of federal agencies, inaugurated a series of symposia on the use of predictive analytics in policing. But efforts to use quantitative geospatial data to map and predict crime go back much further. Predictability emerged in the U.S. as a guiding principle of parole and probation during the 1930s and 1940s, and from there spread into other sectors. And computer software and hardware firms such as Esri and IBM have been developing crime prediction programs since at least the 1990s. One of the most popular programs currently in use PredPol is based on algorithms developed by a research team that includes computer scientists, anthropologists, and mathematicians. PredPol, which has raised millions of dollars in venture capital since its launch in 2012, includes advisors from the CIA's venture capital firm, InQtel, and is in use by dozens of US police departments, including in Los Angeles and Atlanta. So this is actually how Los Angeles engages in predictive policing today. Its proponents celebrate it as a magical mode of law enforcement that they describe as sci-fi or crystal ball policing. Predpol's algorithms predict crime based on the idea that criminal activity and seismic activity share similar patterns. Predpol co-founder George Moeller, is George here? Okay. A professor of mathematics at Santa Clara University argues that earthquakes are usually followed by aftershocks. 
These are, as he puts it, clustering patterns that his algorithms assume are also true of crime. Moeller claims crime is often followed, followed what, by what we might call after crimes. And further, he claims that research in criminology demonstrates that crime is like a virus that spreads like a contagion. In other words, if crime patterns behave like earthquakes or viruses, then predictive policing deserves the same scientific status as seismology or epidemiology. Now, the rhetorical purpose of Predpol's claims to science serves a very specific legal effect. At the heart of legal challenges to the police practice of stop and frisk, for example, is skepticism of police claims to prediction. In other words, it is the belief that it is racial profiling and not knowledge of future crimes that determines often who police choose to stop and frisk. Predictive policing, however, provides seemingly objective data for police to engage in those same practices, but now in a manner that appears free from racial profiling. Predictive policing exposes the liberal state's desire for knowledge and intelligence of not, not only or merely the past, but the future. We might also reverse this and say predictive policing helps to illuminate a fundamental state anxiety, the fear of not knowing or the fear of the unknown. Predictive policing then, de then demonstrates the ways police power tries to predict the future out of the fear of the unknown. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that predictive policing locates the violence in the, of the future in the poor of the present. So that was, those were all the entries I wanted to read. I, I read one entry in each of the sections. Um, and uh, just to give you an idea about the sort of the breadth uh, of entries that we cover. Um, and you know, the the goal, as I said at the beginning, um, was to try to uh, interrupt what we what we my my co-author and I call cop speak, which is the way in which the la the very language we have uh, about police comes to us directly from police, and that there might be there might be a way to imagine an alternative to the police we have, but only if we first have a shared language that we generate ourselves, not, not from police. But also, and I'll, and I'll end with this, um, this is an anti-authoritarian book in that I'm not imposing on any reader how to read it. You don't read from the beginning to the end. You pick an entry that you find interesting, and then you follow the cross-listed entries to, to read your own book, so that this book ends up being a different book for every reader. And, and I, as, as everyone I've uh, presented this to has said, well, what solutions do you have? And my answer is, I have no solutions. Um, I don't think we can even start talking about solutions to the, to, the, to the police we have, or alternatives to the police we have, until we uh, develop a shared language about police that might get us there. So thank you very much for coming out. You had, you had your hand up, sir. In a, from a copter? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I, yeah. When we were when we were conducting the research from this, we were using. The, um, 
I don't know if you could find this if you, if you Google it, but one of the sort of famous images uh, of so police helicopter is an image uh, from the Chicago Aerial Department with cops shooting from helicopters down into a crowd. Um, so it's, it's, it's generally, you know, as you know from living in LA, the police helicopters um, are a form of surveillance, um, but it isn't, it isn't unprecedented that that police would use it as a, when they say force multiplier, they really, they really do mean that. And there have been examples of shootings from, from helicopters. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with that specific example though, so I don't, I don't know what the... Yeah. Well, I was um, I was involved in anti-police violence organizing in Albuquerque after the police killing of James Boyd, which was in uh, which was actually the, the this the book was uh, officially released on March 16th, just last week, which was the fourth anniversary of the police killing of James Boyd in Albuquerque. So we had an and we, it's not an accident that it was released on that day, because um, I, I I um I noticed you know and I I don't I don't know. Um, if, if there's anybody here that has, that has worked actively on anti-police violence or, or organizing, okay, <laughs> okay, and um, then you know very well that there are these moments of time uh, where it's uh, it appears as though there's there's um, a, a sort of a mass movement developing that really suddenly sort of with clear eyes recognizes the problem of racialized police violence. And I found in Albuquerque, that moment was in the spring of 2014, and I was at a meeting, I recall, there was a very wealthy, white, prominent political figure in Albuquerque who stood up at a meeting and said that he gets very scared now when he drives home from work in his Prius. And he thinks the police, <laughs> thinks the police are gonna pull him over and might shoot him. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, we have, we're in a moment here. <laughs> You know, because it's, 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 those moments of crisis are not just moments, they're every day for a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of people. And in Albuquerque, that's the South of Valley or the International District. But the rest of the city, the, the, the police tend to serve their interests and enhance their security and safety, not detract from it, like in the sort of heavily policed parts of town where poor people live and people of color. And so, um, and I, I watched as that, um, that moment sort of seem to just just fall away and the and people who were marching in the street and ready to really confront the problem of racialized police violence went back to their regular lives and were content to let this reform process take over the department of justice came to albuquerque and you know as we point out in the book the department of justice engages in these really i think effective investigations of what they call uh uh, pa patterns of un unconstitutional policing. But the goal is really to just restore legitimacy in the police. And I mean, if you want, read today's LA Times, you saw the headline about the lapel cameras, right? And if you read the comments from the people at the end of that article, they're scared to release lapel camera video because of the way it will, it will um, undermine faith in police. So reform, police reform is all about restoring our faith in police. Police reform, the way it happens in this country, and the book mostly focuses on the US. The, you all are the, are the subjects of police reform, not the police. You're supposed to be the ones whose, whose eroding faith in police is shored up. 
that's the goal of police reform. And it's because we, I, my argument and where this book comes from is that we don't have a language to talk about police. Right? When we talk about lapel cameras, we think to ourselves, well, that's good, right? That's great. That maybe will provide some accountability and transparency. But what really happens, first of all, uh, all lapel cameras do is witness the violence. Right? James Boyd, we know about James Boyd in Albuquerque because of the lapel camera by the cop that killed him, but he had a lapel camera and James Boyd is still dead. And so, so it, and it also is a technology controlled by police, designed by police, deployed by police, and the images are, uh, are images that police decide how to capture, when to capture, and when to release. And also, as you probably know from watching lapel camera videos of people who've been killed by police, you end up becoming the cop. You're watching yourself kill somebody on that. And this is this disturbing image that, that in some ways enlists you into this idea that we live in a community populated only by threats and emergencies and only therefore that, uh, that and therefore require police. And, and so the book is a, is a and, a, and there's no lack of great books on police from a critical or radical perspective that really examine the history of police or the logic of police or the politics of police. Um, but what's missing, what my co-author and I wanted to do was, was offer really literally a field guide that, that doesn't just take up one part of it, doesn't just do a history, doesn't just examine some sort of theory or logic of it, but just takes the entire police project and puts it under a microscope and offers an alternative language for us to talk about it. And so that was, that was the goal of the project and that's why, that's why we did it. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Um, just talking about kind of body cameras and lapel cameras, um, another thing I think a lot of the public don't realize is that it's a private company that has supplies these. It's a private company that gets paid to kind of yeah. keep and store the data. And the police not only choose what footage is released, but they get to review the footage before they go into court, before the court even sees it. Um, and I see that as a really direct link between kind of police and the capitalist system. And I noticed that you bring it up as well um, in the section that you read about um, the protection of kind of white property. Mm -hmm. rights. And I was wondering, because I just bought the book here, if there's any other places where you kind of see this intersection of the capitalist system and the police that are protecting it, kind of like within the language of policing. Do you mean um, other books or no, other like entries that you've like oh, oh the entries yeah. oh yeah um I, uh, in this book i mean w w there's an entry on um i considered reading it's a starlight tour i mean one of the things that uh, so coming from albuquerque the large indigenous population uh if there's one if there's one i think common target of police power that almost is generally avoided and ignored even by i think left press would be police violence against indigenous people. And so there's a, a number of entries in, in the, the book that try to get at that, right? The way that police, um, the way that police uh, target particularly uh, native people in Albuquerque or in, in the case of the book, the Starlight Tour is, is in Saskatchewan, right? So that, that um, indigenous people by their by their, just, by their very presence become a problem, right? They just are automatically a threat. And therefore, there's a very specific way in which they're policed. And in, and in Saskatchewan, it's through abandonment, taking people and leaving them out on the frozen prairie to die, to freeze to death, right? So that, that it, 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 and this is, I think, why we in the book, um, Tyler and I, try to offer two genealogies of police. One is the slave patrol. So this, like, the very word patrol comes to us from the slave patrol. The language that we use, the beat, 
comes to us from the slave patrol. So a lot of the language, it would be a mistake to say that the police today are no different than the slave patrol, but the language is, is the same. And the goal of control, imposing a particular kind of order is the same. And the other genealogy, at least in the US, would be the, the militia. Right? So that, that uh, a, a friend of mine, I don't know if anyone has ever read the work of Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, but Roxanne has a new book out called Loaded, which is about the Second Amendment. And if you examine the history of, the, of colonial militias in the US, the Second Amendment was really an imperative to police indigenous populations. And so the Second Amendment became a way to impose a particular obligation to police indigenous people. So that the, in our book, we try to provide a number of entries that, that connect this history of, of, of um, indigenous dispossession to contemporary policing, particularly in, among native people. So I, I've done work on the street in Albuquerque and I have, I have yet to meet a homeless native person that hasn't had a copy all of them go back to the reservation. No matter where they are or where they're from, most of them are born in Albuquerque. But that—that's go back to the reservation, right? So it's 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 a way in which policing is. I mean, I quoted W. B. Du Bois, right? That, it's not a metaphor, right? This sort of idea of a color line—it it literally is a line that police that police patrol, and they do it in all kinds of ways. And of course, violence is one tactic. Um, and so, and one of the entries is thin blue line, which I mean, police really hold themselves up as this sort of the um, the last line between what they would call civilization and savagery. So to 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 come out and try to position yourself politically as against police, even if you were to say, as we do, the, the police that we have, is to come out against civilization. I, I mean, it, and I think that even sort of standard liberal discourse, the majority of people that might, that might um, be outraged by police violence are often really ready to buy that sort of central premise that, yeah, well, I know it's bad, but we need police. How else will we secure right, a, a civilization against what we see as this sort of savage? And, I, and my answer is, well, do you feel secure? Right? Do you feel safe? Right? And if you do, is that safety or security? Is that, the, is that the, at the expense of someone who's not safe, to, safe or secure? And, and if that's true, then police aren't engaged in a project that serves the majority. Um, and that, that's what the book is trying to do, to force, to force a conversation that I don't think we're having, which requires a different, a different vocabulary. And so throughout the book, um, we're very, uh, we, we foreground this question of race, because you can't have a conversation about police in the United States. If you're not having a conversation about race and histories of settler colonialism and ongoing settler colonialism, particularly in places like LA or where I'm from, Albuquerque, which have this long, for some people, hidden history of indigenous resistance and presence. Um, without, without, and, if you're, and so if you're not talking about that, you're really not talking about the police that we have. Yeah, right there.
tied to being universally known by law enforcement and the Yeah, I, I, you know, there's an entry in the book called Furtive Movements. And um, it's intended to point out, I mean, one of the common things that I've often heard when I'm in public meetings, and particularly in Albuquerque, is, is and this is a common, even us, it doesn't matter politically who this person is, but they'll often say, well, if they would have just listened to what the cops said, it would have turned out better, right? You just have to submit to police authority. Um, and this is an answer to your question. It doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> Furtive movements provides, uh, police have unlimited discretion on the, on the street to decide who is a threat and what is an emergency, and unlimited discretion to decide how to respond to that threat or emergency. And, and there might be the rare occasion where the courts come in afterwards and hold a, hold a cop, an individual officer accountable. That, that doesn't mean that person's still not dead, right? And, and so that's the, I mean, whether we're talking about Amadou Diallo or we're talking about someone who holds their cell phone in their hand and a cop says that's a, that's a weapon or someone goes for their wallet and a cop says that's a Philando Castile, for example. That's a weapon. So there's no, there's no um, advice I would ever provide anyone that would resolve the problem that you're pointing out. And I think that your question gets at precisely the problem we have in talking about police, which is that there is literally nothing some people can do to avoid that that encounter. And the, the way I used to talk about it in Albuquerque, to try to explain this in a way that people could understand it, was to say that a violent encounter between a cop and a homeless person or someone with a mental illness, or some teenager who happens to be walking on a dark street by, by him or herself who's native or person of color, and a violent encounter between, between a cop and that person is only a matter of time. There's, you know, uh, and it, of course it's exacerbated, right, if you're talking about folks who, the cop, they don't speak the language a cop is speaking or they're, or they're you know. And of course what, what police officers never consider and wouldn't matter if they did was that uh, what's routine for them is exceptional for everyone else, right? That, that moment of encounter is routine for the cop and scares the hell out of the person on the other end of that. So as my co-author always says, there's no such thing as an equal encounter between a cop and what he calls a non-cop subject. There's no such thing as an equal encounter. It's always structured by violence because violence is always potentially possible part of that and it's and it's and we have an entry on discretion because cops have unlimited authority to identify the threat and decide how to respond to that threat in the moment um, and it's of course why I mean in a general way very few police officers are ever prosecuted for things they do on duty I mean very it's extremely rare um, and it's because courts won't go behind discretion uh, at all and so there's there's just no and, and, and this, and what your question is, is the right question to ask, but it also, there's no answer to that because, and I think it gets at why we don't have the police we deserve. And when I say police we deserve, I mean, we, all of us are, are, are find ourselves in some time insecure, our safety, we worry about our safety and we have to take that seriously, but how we take it seriously um, is important and we can't even have that conversation right now with the police that, that we have. You had your hand? One more question. Okay, one more question. Yeah, I was wondering, um, maybe like while you were writing this book or since it's come out, have you had any conversations or reactions from police 
Yeah, well, my brother-in-law's a cop. <laughs> my grandfather was a cop. His two brothers were cops. Um, uh, I was arrested at a protest, and my lawyer was a former cop. Um, uh, and I've had a lot of conversations. And, and also, in Albuquerque, uh, I had a lot of conversations with former cops, police officers who left the department, disgusted with the department. And, you know, their, their complaints were very much... Um, about the, you know, the particular way that department operates, which is different than in every other department or what have you. But um, I, I had long conversations. Well, I would say that the, the officer-friendly, we have an entry called officer-friendly and an entry called community policing. And both of those entries, uh, for me at least, when I was writing them, were influenced by conversations I had with cops because I met a lot of officers who became cops because they thought it was the best way for them to contribute to their community. And I was telling some friends before dinner um, tonight that uh, this cop in particular was like, should I be a nurse or a cop? And he became a cop. And then he ended up quitting, really forced out of the Albuquerque Police Department because he, he uh, chose not to use lethal force. And it was an unacceptable choice to his fellow police officers. Because to them, his choice not to use lethal force undermines the choice they might make later to use lethal force. It proved that lethal force might not be necessary, and that threatened what they had to do. But, but for me, in talking to him, and I brought him to my class, and he just talked to my students, um, what's important is the way in which, like this idea, how do we have this idea in our head that if you want to help, and you want to contribute, to helping your community and serving your community, you become a cop. Where does that come from? And it's, and it's this idea, like we were all social, maybe not all of us, but many of us were socialized to revere and respect police officers. They, they, and so our, our, our officer friendly, officer friendly by the way, is an actual program the Chicago Police Department created in the 60s and it was an idea to get police officers into like midnight basketball programs in the city and have them reading books to your kids at school, right? And to try to train young kids at an early age to, to uh, and by the way, they, they weren't coming in off duty. They were on duty with a gun at their holster, right? And the idea is like very early on, it's like, he's got a gun, I'm gonna let him read to me. Um, <laughs> But it's also this idea then that, that becomes really commonplace that like, oh, this cop's really friendly. Like they really want to help me. And, and so I want to go be a cop. And then th this officer, this guy I've met, like becomes a cop. And he's like, wait, hold on. This institution is not what I thought it was. Like this is, I'm not helping people the way I, I thought I would get to, right? And, and then you get cops then who, who want to help. Who go into it thinking this is a way to help, and then they become disillusioned, and then they start complaining about you, right? Well, you all have all these demands on me. All I want to do is help. You got me fighting this thing, doing this, right? As though that's not the job, but that's always been the job. It's always been the job. It's never not been the job, uh, and 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 so you know, I, I learned that this sort of common complaint by cops who love the job but but hate they have to do this other stuff like they hate they have to deal with that homeless guy in the corner they hate they have to mediate this domestic dispute they just want to you know roll in their cruiser or they want to you know this is not the job they thought um, and and so they think it's not something went wrong Right, there's something along the way went wrong and we've got to fix this right we've got to fix this um, and it becomes a really difficult so it's even a difficult conversation to have with cops about like, how do we fix this, right? So then, 
and, and this contributes to the us versus them attitude by a lot of police departments, which is like, we know what our job is supposed to be, but you all are making it harder on us. Right? And that, that contributes to that. So for, for me, I mean, the conversations I've had with police officers, both before and after writing the book, have really mostly been with what I would call um, dissident cops, <laughs> cops who just was like, I don't want to be a cop anymore. You know, my, th my feeling is like, every ex-cop is a great cop. You know, like, like that's the best kind of cop. Because it's the cop that sort of looked critically at what they were doing and, and wanted something else entirely. So that would be that would be my answer to that question. Um, so we're gonna do a quick switch over. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, we're gonna set up a table for a signing so that you can take some notes. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.